0: the drive nation podcast with dan prosser and andrew frankel episode 43 and we're talking all about jaguar um mostly because last week andrew you wrote a very funny piece on drive nation about blowing up a couple of very special jaguars (laughs) Um, so uh, as a reminder but also for people who might not have seen it can you just run us through that tale again please
1: yeah, I mean, obviously, this year is the 60th anniversary of the launch of the Jaguar E-Type, um, and I think, as far as British sports cars are concerned, I think that's probably our finest contribution to um, you know the world of cars. I mean, I think, in terms of all cars of British origin, it's up there with the what with the Austin Seven and the Mini and the McLaren F1, I guess. And so, it's, it's a pretty important um event and i was just sitting there thinking how do i write about this because everybody's going to be doing the you know the story of the e-type and i just thought well you know just try and do something a bit personal and i just happen um to (laughs) yes well I, i didn't i didn't i didn't actually blow one of them up i just thought that i had um but i did blow
0: the other one up comprehensively so yeah that's that's what i wrote about so they were not just any e-types were they i I think you explained in the story there were two original prototypes
1: yeah they made they they made the the first i think they were the first two e-types um they were prototypes full of prototype bits one was a coupe one was a roadster unsurprisingly um and yeah and and the roadster the roadster isn't actually owned by jaguar today but it is on permanent loan to it so they so they they effectively have it um, but the coupe is owned by a historian, um, and writer, Chuckle Philip Porter, who is behind the Porter Press, if you've ever seen any of those sort of large and luxurious car books that he does. And when, uh, yeah, in the late 1990s, he got this car, and it was a complete. I mean, it, it was almost in you know cardboard boxes. It was you know, it was an absolute start again restoration. I mean, to give you an idea, the car in its time had been right-hand drive, left-hand drive, and then right-hand. Drive. I mean, it, you know, the car had been you know, like many of these prototypes, it had been, it had had a life and a half. Uh, anyway, he put it all back together again. And the thing about that car was, it was, it was the car that, uh, with the help of a of a, of a very. Um, how can i put this um healthy engine um <laughs> did do mm. 150 miles an hour for the auto car road test back in early 1961 um and he wanted to make sure or find out whether it would do it again and um yeah With i'm a, not going to go into a similarly
0: because, healthy engine
1: yeah uh, well i mean it, the, the, there is a bit of a story behind just how healthy that engine is on the one on the one side you will find people who will tell you it was a completely standard engine and all they did was um, they got one which they happened to know had given good figures uh, on the dynamometer because the way those things were built that way, there was always some difference in the tolerances and some were just better than others. And so they issued one of the good ones. And at the other end of that spectrum, you'll tell people who, you, you'll find people who tell you, said, well, basically it's got a Mans winning racing D type engine in it, which it didn't. Um, and, and Philip did a huge amount of research into this um, and, and I did come up with what sounded to me like a plausible spec for the car. So it had. It had, it was sort of the, you know, the heads and the manifolds of gas flowed. It had big valves in it. Um, it had, um, some clever piston rings, which allowed a lot less oil to circulate the, around the engine than otherwise it would. And so, so it was warm. I don't think it was even hot. So, you know, Jaguar always used to claim 265 horsepower for that engine and, and, and conveniently forgot to mention that was a gross figure. I think the normal ones probably gave, I don't know, 220 something like that and i suspect his one probably gave 250 and anyway it was enough to coax this thing up to 150 miles an hour in 1961 and in 2000 me and i i called him an eight-year-old chris harris in the post and some people have thought that i meant literally yeah he they wasn't tried to count
0: old. back didn't they <laughs> he, he
1: wasn't eight years old uh, but he was he, 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 you know, to me he was because he was just the the sort of the office lad um but he was the poor sod who had to sit next to me. And there was no room in the car for helmets and it didn't have any seat belts. And we went barreling around the Millbrook Speed Bowl um, faster and faster with this thing understeering furiously. And then because of the way the aero on those cars used to work or more to the point didn't work. And the back came more and more off the ground. The understeer would sort of turn to oversteer. And I was starting to get a bit twitchy about the whole thing when it when it blew up. Um, and Chris, I mean, the first I knew about it, Chris started Pointing to the mirror which i looked at looked in and saw we were towing this ball of smoke around the track with us um and then the engine note changed and then i thought mm, yeah that's not good um and so yes and, and i think I, th- I think it was another complete rebuild um yeah oh, i don't dear. know what i'd done i'd you know but something very serious um and yet a few months later he turned up again with a big smile on his face uh, with another engine in his car all the same engine rebuilt and we went off and you know it was fine and we did 148.2, Anyway, whatever we did, it wasn't 150, but on those speed balls, because of the banking, uh, cars never go as fast as they could do. But it, whatever we did, it was more than an equivalent of 150 miles an hour on the flat. So that's that.
0: Well, that's very cool. It's a cool story. But I actually can't quite believe how brave you are and how idiotic Chris was to... Sit next to you in this ancient e-type doing 150 miles an hour around that place i just i mean i must be i must be soft because i just don't fancy that from either uh, to be side honest of the with
1: car. you, I, I, to be honest with you i didn't much fancy it and the reason i did it was i'd gone all the way up there and i just hadn't thought about this it never occurred to me that there wouldn't be enough room to put a lid on chris had a lid on i think I think he uh, well, did because he's, he's yes. a little un. Um and I, and I just couldn't if I could believe me I would have but I wouldn't have been, literally wouldn't have been able to drive the car and neither of us had any seat belts because there weren't any belts in the car and, and, oh and the thing is God. if you go all the way up there and the bloke's there and it's his pride and joy you're not going to go oh well terribly sorry um I'm a bit tall and it hasn't got any belts because you'd say well you know it didn't have any belts when it was new what do you expect and I just hadn't thought about it so I um because i was you know a, a lot younger and perhaps even more stupid then than i am now i just went and did it and and it was fine um so yeah ah <laughs> oh,
0: well, live to tell the tell the tale um okay well that's just our way of getting into jaguar as a topic um but of course the story starts well before the e-type um so let's go back to the start when the name jaguar didn't, didn't even exist No, I mean, the the start was way
1: back in the 1920s um, when Bill Lyons, William Lyons, uh, was living in Blackpool um, and he met a bloke called William Walmsley. And we're not going to dwell too much on the pre-war stuff because I don't think it's necessarily the most interesting period. But um, yeah, I mean, they started the company. I think think Lyons was so young, they had to wait until he was 21 before they could even sort of officially get going with it. But it was called Swallowside Cars. Uh, and then started off making sidecars for motorcycles. Um, and then they started doing some very um, highly regarded um, versions of things like the Austin 7, the Austin 7 Swallow and that sort of thing. And then, you know, in the normal progression of things, they started making cars and they made, you know, Swallow sidecars became SS cars and they made the SS1 and the SS2. And they actually called the thing a Jaguar for the first time in, I think, 1935. But that was like a sort of a model name um and then obviously and, you know and, and and by then you know cars like the ss100 um you know three and a half litre ss100 is to me one of my absolute dream cars um i'm sure you know what i'm talking about if not go and look at a photograph one because they are just gorgeous um i mean to me visually every bit as beautiful as any pre-war bentley or aston martin or or or, or, or anything else um, and then obviously, you know, after the war, um, a company calling itself SS probably wasn't going to sell a large number of cars. So um, they had to think of something else to call the company. And so, yeah, SS cars became Jaguar and, um, and on they went.
0: OK, so Jaguar. when was this? Immediately after the war, so late 40s?
1: Yeah, immediately, yeah exactly. Immediately after the war. I mean, the absolute, you know, their defining product, the thing that set them on the way was the XK120, which someone will start starting at their smartphone when i say this but i think the xk120 came out in either 48 or 49 um and it was it was the most extraordinary car um because it was utterly beautiful i mean you know if you could, to me an xk120 with spats covering yeah. up the rear wheels oh um, so you will have a, spats then oh yeah I'd have, of course you'd have spats yeah <laughs> an xk120 roadster black with red upholstery and spats i mean oh yeah that can really really get me going apart from the fact i don't fit in the bloody things but anyway um it, it looked extraordinary and yes they did sort of nick the styling from the pre-war bmw 328 but we won't dwell on that um and and obviously under the bonnet there was an engine um there was a completely new straight six alloy head twin cam 3.4 liter motor um which would go on to become you know one of the most highly regarded i mean if you think what that engine did you know as well as power you know any number of jaguar saloons and sports cars it also powered enormous limousines and it won Le more five times
0: mm, that's pretty cool isn't it
1: this was a road car engine and also, and also, you know, and and you, you know, you think of all the other, you know, the, all the sort of English garage easter manufacturers, guys like, uh, Lister and Cooper and HWM and all that sort of thing, who just, because this engine was so strong, it was, it gave such good power, it was so easy to look after. They just went and made their cars and they just thought watering a power, by of course, you'd just go and stick an XK engine in it. So, um, that got them going um and once they had the xk120 um th- suddenly you know um all the other manufacturers that were uh, around at the time were thinking you know if you think that this was at the same time that aston martin was coming up with the db2 um and the db2 had a smaller less powerful engine it was massively more expensive than the xk120 i think most people would probably agree with me that although I, I do actually genuinely love the look of a db2 it it's a slightly unusually looking car whereas i think there's there can't be a petrol head in the world he doesn't think xk 120 is a stunning piece of design mm. um and it's so, a very
0: pretty thing i'm just looking at a couple of pictures now it is you're right there's a the second image on google is a black car with the wheel spats it's a coupe and it, it looks like it's sitting suspiciously close to the ground it is but it looks actually sinister but also beautiful um yeah great great bit of design um and so okay so at this point the xk120 has come along and changed the game did, was it the 120 that uh broke speed records
1: for yeah. production cars yeah it did it did so yeah um uh, norman jewish the great norman jewish my mate norman um uh, yeah i mean jaguar by, by that stage they were um they were very very keen on getting publicity and they knew they were onto a good thing for the car so they sent him off in you know, production it was pretty pretty highly modified with a very aerodynamic body but i mean he went off to uh, this big long straight in belgium um and did 170 something miles an hour in one um which oh. got an awful can you imagine what um what that would have been like i mean i I mean i presume the thing was swerving around all over the place i don't know but um yes brave
0: boy um and then sorry the just before we skip along that that engine is it really true that this engine was in production until the 90s
1: yes it was i mean it's incredible isn't it you know it was designed immediately after the war um and it was you know it was absolutely the mainstream of you know what you would find in your jaguar all the way for i mean it powered apart until the v12 came um, in 1971 so all through the 50s all through the 60s it was the only engine you could have and they did it in various different capacities there was a a 2.4 2.8 3.4 3.8 and a 4.2 but then they had the v12 but the six obviously kept going all the way through the 80s and i think the last thing it was in think was some kind of daimler limo um which did indeed survive until the 1990s 92 i think um absolutely um incredible uh, yeah
0: so the the oldest versions of that engine are older than you and the youngest versions are younger than me my goodness that puts it in perspective <laughs> thank you for that dan oh, pleasure that's what i'm here for um <laughs> okay and but maybe the, the most significant thing about um, the, the Jaguar twin cam straight six is what it managed after the XK 120, immediately after. Oh, well, the racing.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, it wasn't really designed as a racing engine. I mean, you know, we think about the V12, which came into production in 1971. They started talking about a V12 engine for racing in 1951. Okay, they weren't that keen on the six-cylinder engine for racing purposes because, I mean, it really was built as a road car engine. And one of the reasons you could tell that was it had a very long stroke and a very narrow bore because back then, uh, cars were taxed on the width of their bores. And so, you know, all early engines like that are... T- I mean, that's why they all have so much torque, um, because of these massive long strokes and these tiny little bores, which is great for road car use because, as I say, you get lots of low-down torque and that's great. Um, but it's hopeless for racing because you just can't get... That Kind of parallel, and at the same time, they were up against the you know V12 Ferraris. Um, in you know, right throughout their 50s racing campaigns, you know, the V12 Ferrari was like kind of the, the staple opposition. Um, and you know, they wanted an engine that could compete, and you know, they had a 3.4 liter straight six up against 4.1, 4.5 liter V12 Ferraris. Um, and so they started very seriously thinking in fact what they did their idea was that they would effectively create they get two xk engines um and stick them um on a common crank but with a very short stroke so instead of being what they call an undersquare engine where your stroke is longer than your bore it would become an oversquare engine um and they I think, they, I mean, it was all scoped out. It was going to be a 5-litre V12, not the 5-litre V12 that went into the XJ13 in the mid-1960s, um, because the early 1950s V12 never came to anything. But, you know, that was the plan. And it was only when, despite it all, Jaguars started winning Le Mans, that they thought, oh, well, maybe we don't need to do this. And they didn't, because, you know, the XK engine was good enough, and particularly once Malcolm Sayer the gifted, the genius aerodynamicist um, was designing their racing cars for them. Um, And what they discovered was whatever they lost in you know in brute force to the ferraris down the straight um they would more than make up in aerodynamic efficiency so they you know they'd all come honking out of terre rouge at Le Mans, and the ferraris would duly drag away into the distance and then they just sit there on the straight and the, the, the ferraris would hit a brick wall at 140 150 miles an hour and the jaguars would just keep going and by the end of the straight the jaguars would be in front and and that was enough
0: um, and what was, what was it? What was it? Enzo allegedly said, "Aerodynamics are for people who can't build engines."
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, so well, you know. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure he was right about that. Uh, I think Jaguar proved he was probably wrong about that. But at the same time, what I would say. Um, is that Ferraris of that era were designed to win everywhere. They were designed to win at Le Mans, or you know, or Sebring, or the Targa Florio, or the Millimilia. Jaguars were only ever designed to win on the quickest circuits because that was the only place their aero could really make the difference. Um, you know, if you look at all the races that Jaguar won in the nineteen fifties, I don't think ever entered the Targa Florio. Um, there was never a. Well, there was a sort of slightly works entry into the millimilia in 1952 but that was to that was to do with disc brakes that wasn't because they thought they could win it um they, they just didn't go into races like that because they knew they didn't have a chance they needed places with long long straights um and so they did okay at places like Reims. they won the 12 hours there once uh, and obviously Le Mans, um which was back then you know without Indy canes without porsche curves um was you know you would have been flat to the floor for i don't know 80 90 percent of the lap um and there they could really really make the difference and you know they designed their cars to win Le Mans, not to win the world sports car championship at all which which they never did um and yeah the xk120 became the xk120 c c for competition but in fact if you look at a c type um and an xk120 there's really very little they have in common other than obviously you know they're running it the engine and the gearbox is the same but they you know the chassis isn't remotely similar An xk120 is a pretty conventional um ladder chassis and a c types a uh, tubular space frame um i think some elements of the front suspension were common to both but it was a racing car um and it went off in it, and it got the job done, you know. And with the D-type that followed it, five times in in seven attempts. Although the last two, in fifty six and fifty seven, weren't works weren't, weren't works entries. They were the Acuria cost cars. Um, so yeah, so Ferrari. So sorry, Jaguar as a works team won the more. Um, in 51 and 53 with the C-Type. They did win it in 55, obviously the tragic race where all those people died. Uh, But I think most objective observers will tell you they only won that race because the mercedes team pulled out um you know, at the time they pulled out at like two o'clock in the morning um Fangio and Moss were leading the race in the Mercedes by you know a big amount um the Jaguars had effectively been vanquished but the Mercedes pulled out and so they won the race and a wins a wins a win um and yeah and then a curia as a private team using you know basically showing standard cars one in 56 and 57 and you know and the rest is history
0: yeah I mean nevertheless winning Le Mans five times in seven years is an enormous achievement and it's that sort of thing that i mean it feels like a big deal at the time i would think but now looking back at it 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 kind of underpins jaguar's entire heritage particularly motorsporting heritage doesn't it it's the backbone of it all really
1: there is no doubt to me that in some subliminal way jaguar is still selling cars today on the back of those victories in in the 1950s uh, and obviously those in the um in the late 80s and early 90s too um because they created the the character of the brand didn't they um you know they made you know if we think of jaguar you know despite the fact that they make you know suvs and you know four-door saloons and estate cars and all this rather sort of you know middle of the road stuff jaguar is a sports car brand isn't it and why is jaguar a sports car brand jaguar is a sports car car brand because it won the more five times in seven attempts in the 1950s and that's where it all comes from um and so that's the value of doing that sort of thing and that's why i just don't understand those manufacturers um who toddle off you to like bmw is the great example of this who toddled off to more won it once in 1999 and thought well i've done that now i never need to go back bang um you know, you've got to make it stick and you know all those other great teams you know Bentley and Ferrari and Ford and Audi and you know and, and obviously Porsche um, have have got that point and have you know, done great things for their uh, for their brands because of it.
0: Mm. It's really interesting isn't it? it I think when motorsport when manufacturers are engaging in motorsport they have to think of it as not just a, a sort of short to medium term investment, but you're you're basically doing your successors thirty, forty, fifty years down the line an enormous favour. Um, I, I think about Toyota when it finally won Le Mans for the first time. Yeah, it hardly mattered that actually they only beat privateer teams because the no, manufacturers nobody remembers that disappeared. Nobody remembers that. And when when in I don't know twenty, thirty years time, Toyota wants to call on some genuine motorsport heritage yes. to sell its latest cars it can say we won Le Mans in 2017 yeah. whatever it was yeah absolutely. It, it, it really matters
1: and it, and it doesn't even matter if it's one of your customer teams that does it as, as it did for Jaguar uh, for their last two wins doesn't matter at all a Jaguar won Le Mans that's all anybody ever remembers um you know nobody remembers the circumstances nobody remembers who came second um yeah and nobody remembers who was you know running the team that entered the car that won the race it was a jaguar it won the race and that is all anybody remembers
0: Mm. yeah that's true um okay so from being from world beating success on the racetrack at le mans world beating road cars followed um first of them is now if if anyone has watched the crown that uh netflix drama it's really good actually but there is a scene where um, and i'm pretty sure it's queen elizabeth goes up to jaguar in coventry to have a look around and she's shown around uh, a particular model that's presented as the mk1 oh dear yeah it, it's it it, it great <laughs> but is, anyway is, it, is, it,
1: is that what they called it?
0: That, it that's what they say in the in the show in oh the crown yeah, the mk1 and, and they're usually so good at that sort of thing I in know. that series
1: i did kind hadn't spotted that
0: I can't believe there wasn't one person on the set that just went oh, excuse me it's a, a Mark 1. <laughs> but anyway yeah. we're not talking about the Mark 1 we're talking about the Mark 2.
1: Yes, but largely because the Mark 1 was only called was only become retrospectively known as the Mark 1 yeah. after the Mark 2 had come out. Of course. It's like Jaws wasn't called Jaws 1, was it? <laughs> um, <laughs> um yeah, so no, yeah, um, and the and the Mark 1 which was, you yeah, know, looks like a Mark 2. Um but was a rather flawed car it was the car that tragically mike hawthorne died in um in early 1959 um but in fact but later that year as you say yeah the mark ii came out um which was a sort of mid-sized saloon but it was again you know if you look back to the xk120 and why that was so good well it was so good because it looked amazing it was really affordable and it drove fantastically and they just did they just reinvented that they just thought well let's do it again but in a saloon car format um and that was the mark ii um and you know they're just wonderful cars um you know you think of mark ii now is you know if you, if you i mean the, the most desirable uh is the manual 3.8 liter so it's the manual gearbox with the biggest engine they could shovel under the under the bonnet um and most of them have been breathed on warmed up because they're just so easily easy to tune but if you just go and even just go and drive which i did quite recently a nice standard car and you think this thing is over 60 years old it'll just blow your mind away because it's so good it was such a you know, on one hand it was quiet and it was comfortable and it did all the, you know, big saloon things that you needed to do. And on the other hand, I mean, they were complete weapons. I mean, that's why they were beloved by sort of getaway drivers and bank robbers and all that sort of thing. Because they were just, they were so rapid and you could still get lots of loot and, you know, conspirators in there with you. And, uh, yeah brilliant machines and i don't know if i'm sure many people listening to this have seen them racing at um at goodwood and guys like grant williams you know sending them as sideways as you can possibly be imagine anything going sideways um and you know i mean if you're my sort of age and you sort of grew up watching you know the sweeney and things like that they were just part of your upbringing because that's what all the bad guys drove and it was just yeah they're yeah (laughs) i'm very very fond of those things
0: i think i remember reading or hearing somewhere that the police had to get Mark Twos because they were the only things that would keep up with Mark IIs. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well absolutely. Absolutely,
1: yeah. And, and, and you didn't want to get the Mark II with a 2.4 litre engine in it. That, was, uh, that, was, uh, that, that, was, that wasn't going to be good. So you, yeah, you get a 2.4, a 3.4, a 3.8. A 3.4 is actually... I think they made more 3.4s than anything else. Um, and a 3.4 is actually more than good enough. There, there's, a, there's not a huge amount of difference. Um, but obviously, if you can get a 3.8 and you can get manual gears... Um, that's what you want to go for but you pay proper money for those
0: now oh do you um okay so a couple of years after the mark ii in 1961 as we've said the e-type arrived um we've spoken a bit about the e-type already but let's just um briefly touch on it again because what did it change about the sports car world what did it do that was new apart from look very beautiful
1: well um a bit actually quite a bit. obviously it pulled the same trick that they'd pulled with on 20 and with the mark ii insofar as it was more beautiful than anything else that was out there and it was half the price of anything else that was out there um and it drove beautifully but you know this is this is absolutely learning from the track it also had a you know monocoque construction um when You know, Aston Martin and Ferrari, who were the rivals in all regards other than price, um, were still using ladders or space frames or some hybrid between the two. Um, Because Jaguar had done so well with the D-Type at at Le Mans, and and the D-Type had this, well, they call it a semi monocoque but let's just call it a monocoque construction, they carried it over. It also had fully independent rear suspension, which no Aston Martin or Ferrari of the time did. So here was a car which was... At least as beautiful, probably more beautiful than anything else that was out there. Um, it had all this amazing technology on it, and it was half the price. I mean, go figure. I mean, it must—they must have just thought, "What have they done? How could they have done this? And how can they afford?" And you know, and, and, and as you know, they just sold. You know, they, they just couldn't make enough of them um and it was it was an absolute landmark car the e-type because it democratized the sports car. I mean, if if before the e-type you wanted to drive a car that looked that glamorous and go that fast well i mean you basically had to go and buy yourself a well i mean a db4 aston at a pinch although it wasn't as quick um or you know a 250 gt ferrari which would have you know broken the bank and yet here was the e-type um you know, and it wasn't a cheap car, but it was certainly wildly more affordable um, than its rivals. It looked probably better than any of them. And it was far more technologically sophisticated than them. I mean, absolute landmark, groundbreaking car. Wow,
0: that's cool. Um, okay, and then the third car in the the world-beating triumvirate of this era was the XJ6, um, 1968. Um, I've got some pictures of it. Of the HJ six here now, and it—it's a cool-looking thing, isn't it? But also, I mean, it must have been one of the first sort of big four-door saloon cars that was low to the ground, rather a car that you drop down into rather than step up into. Because the big sort of luxury cars of the of the fifties were very high, tall machines, weren't they? The HJ six, you look at it, is very yeah. low and very sleek, yeah. like a modern car.
1: Yeah, um, and you know, and they kept that look all the way through. I mean, all the way through. You know, pretty much into the into the twentieth century It's one of the things that you know, when we were road testing, um, you know, its successor, you know, the XJ40. Yeah, you know, one of the things, and, and also, you know, the XJ6 and the XJ10. We used to complain about one of the things that we didn't like about it was that there was there wasn't much room inside, and particularly things like rear headroom wasn't as good. But you know, but the choice was, you know either have lots of space and have this rather sit up and sit up and beg traditional looking saloon or have something that looks absolutely bloody amazing. Uh, and just accept that, you know, you, you won't be able to wear your top hat in the back. Um, and <laughs> you know, Jaguar went a particular way with it. Uh, and, and at the same time, they also, you know, the thing I remember most about those cars, um, was just the way that they rode, um, you know, Rolls-Royce at the time had a silver shadow. You know, if you got an original XJ6 and a Silver Shadow of the same of the same era, the Silver Shadow would feel like a wheelbarrow in terms of ride quality compared to the XJ6. They were so I actually Jaguar has William Lyons' company car, which original Mark I XJ6, um, and just occasionally they let idiots like me go and have a quick run up the road in it. Um and you get in it now, and you will think there are stuff in this car, in this whatever it is, this 50-something-year-old car, that designers of brand-new modern cars could learn a lot from today. Um, just in terms, you know, if you think a modern car on its air springs rides well, um, or has a good secondary ride by that, I mean its ability to absorb lumps and bumps, well, yeah, they do. But then go and drive a 1968 XJ6 and be prepared to be completely gobsmacked now of course there's a trade-off because it wouldn't have the body control in high-speed corners and that sort of thing that, that modern cars have around it. but if if you just want to waft around which is what lots of people want to do in those sorts of cars you know i think there's a strong argument to say that there's never been a car um that has ridden significantly better than that in those regards um absolutely amazing
0: Okay, so after dominating Le Mans for a while with the C-Type and the D-Type and after these three astonishing cars, it was clearly after that world domination and crushing the opposition to dust.
1: But it didn't happen, did it?
0: Why not? What on earth went wrong? Bizarre, (laughs) isn't it? Well, what went wrong? I mean... The
1: British motor industry went wrong. I mean, Jaguar got sold to the British Motor Corporation in the, I mean, before the XJ6 came out, but long after the XJ6 would have been um, agreed upon. So they knew what it was going to be. Um, and then you know all the things that went wrong with the British motor industry. Maybe one day we'll do a podcast on that when we're feeling particularly down on the dumps. Um, <laughs> but it was you know it was you know the build quality wasn't right. Um, the vision left the company. Um they just, you know, they had a formula and they'd done it with the XK and the Mark II and the E and the XJ and it worked. And I've I've explained what that formula is during the course of this of this podcast. Um and yet they decided, you know, short termism set out. You know, if you just look at what happened to um to the E type um this unbelievably pure gorgeous thing turned into okay i mean i'm not going to give and lots of people give the v12e type of the mid 70s a real kicking um because it wasn't what the original was and it wasn't i'm not one of those people i can see that it's a car of you know of some merit but it was it it was a poor shadow of its former self it was overweight it was visually compromised it was soft and they, and and they just hadn't carried the vision through and then you look at the xjs again a car that you know god i'm old enough to have tested the back end of the xjs when they were new cars um um you know and i think the xjs is a car of considerable charm but goodness me it wasn't an e-type was it you know 1975 when that came out you know this is you know our replacement for the e-type well really okay well, you know, it's 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 got a nice engine, and it. it looks a bit old. It's quite comfortable, and it's got a certain sort of loose char. But it's not absolutely well-beating. You're not going to get the people in Newport Pagnell or Maranello just quaking in their boots, thinking, "How on earth do we respond to this?" Um, and yeah, it was just it just didn't work out um and the basically yeah i mean you know there were there there were the processes and there were the, all the things that um went wrong with the british motor industry in general and you know the british motor corporation in particular at that time um but if i could put it into one thing i would say just for whatever reason the vision was lost um and yeah and they were near enough sunk because of it
0: okay that's interesting. do you reckon it was close to going bust and might it have disappeared or was there always too much goodwill and no i think it um, would have
1: done i mean you know i came into the business in 1988 and in 1989 jaguar got sold to ford um by this stage they produced uh, to immense fanfare the xj40 uh which was the successor to the xj6 and this the xj40 came out in whenever it was late 80s um with you know a whole new series of engines the aj6 engines um and we had a long-termer at Autocar and our editor at the time, Bob Murray, he wrote his final long-term report as an open letter to Jaguar explaining why this simply wasn't good enough. I mean the car, it had some you know, some great you know, it, it, it did do some really good Jaguar stuff well. I mean, it handled well and it rode well, so the sort of, you know, the Hallmark things that you'd want a Jaguar to do, it did sort of do. But I mean it was so unreliable. You just couldn't recommend anybody actually put their hand in their pocket and spent their own money on one of these things. Um and you know, it was it was it was actually a pretty terrible time. Um and you know things had actually started to get better in some regards um john egan was running the company and he was a very savvy bloke and you know obviously you know competition success had started to come again you know jaguar had won the european touring car championship with the a very successful tom walkenshaw campaign over three years with the with the xjs and and then tom had used that as a sort of springboard to get jaguar back to le mans with the um XJR, whatever it was the, the six, uh, the eight, the nine, and the twelve, um, and that was great. Um, but no, what saved Jaguar or what certainly kept Jaguar going um, was it being sold to Ford um, in 1989. So and you know and that that started a whole other chapter, um, which again um, and maybe we'll go into this in a minute. Um, you know was quite promising, but never quite turned out to be what we'd all hoped it would be.
0: Let's talk about one of the most famous, most recognisable Jaguars there's ever been. Um, but I can see in your notes that you've put the word debacle after 220 Oh XJ220. Yes, 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 that one, that one.
1: I was trying to try and work out which one you were talking about
0: over the two twenty. Yes, there's a, I saw a photograph. I tweeted actually a photograph of an XJ220. It's just a, it's a car cornering, but it's a nose-on shot, really low down, and it actually doesn't look like a car at all. It's so wide and so low. It, it just looks astonishing. Um I think even now they, they look spectacular. So long but I mean you're right, the whole thing was was debacle is the right word.
1: I mean it wasn't all Jaguars fought by enemies. The car was actually designed by a bloke called Keith Helfert, and I think it's a it's an amazing piece of work. Uh I really, really do. Um But um I'm sure lots of people know the story. The car made its debut as a kind of concept but they they'd said that they were going to make it um at the it would have been the birmingham motor show in 1988 um and you know i can remember seeing this thing there or maybe it was elsewhere. i think it was birmingham um and it had it was it was it was one of the biggest cars i would ever seen of any kind and yet it was a mid-engined you know two-seat supercar but it had this it had the v12 engine in it but with a 48 valve cylinder heads it had four wheel drive and it was absolutely enormous but it looked incredible and you know what the the key thing to remember is that this was right at the back end of the sort of the thatcher bull market and you know even total idiots um well like me for instance uh, had been able to make money in the city at that sort of time um and the orders came flooding in and you know everything was all rosy then spool forward whatever it is three or four years for the concept to actually make it into reality and the world's a very very different place and the 220s a very very different car i mean the the v12 is nowhere to be seen in, it, in its place has come this three and a half litre V6 of unknown origin, but which people continue to start talking about, actually, is this the same engine that um, was found in the back of the 6R4 um, Metro rally car? And it was a very close related, relation to that. I don't think what anybody actually knew, and it's probably as well that they didn't, was that the engine's also a very close relative of the pushrod V8 Buick engine that Rover bought. Um, you know, it was basically, it was a pushrod V8, Buick engine, um, but with um, twin cam heads put on it, um, and a couple of cylinders lopped off it. Um, you know, that's where it. And obviously a couple of turbochargers uh, uh, attached to it. Um, but the thing is, is that by then, you know, all the people who'd got so excited about the car in 1988, none of them had any money anymore. They'd lost a the lot because the world by this stage was in a global recession, and the last thing they wanted um, was some. Yeah, you know, ruinously expensive car. I think it cost four hundred and three thousand um, pounds. Turning up on their you know, back then, turning up on their drive, and of course, because the car had changed so much, that was the excuse they needed. And they just turned around and said, "Well, that's not the car I ordered." You know, I ordered a car before we drive driving the massive V12 engine. And what's this thing? It hasn't got any front drive shots. And apparently half the engine appears to have gone missing. (laughs) Um, You wouldn't be happy, would you? Well, you wouldn't. But, you know, but at the same time, you know, there's no concept car that's ever made it into production in the same state. It's not the way the world works. You know, I I, I mean, Jaguar, I mean, I have some sympathy with Jaguar in that way. What I have no sympathy for them at all is their decision to then try and sue the owners. To try and for you know and in pr terms i mean you know that is you know that is chapter one page one line one don't do it don't sue your owners over things like that because i mean and and that's really um what did for the car um and there was no coming back and it was it really was an amazing car you know don't forget this is you know before the mclaren f1 um it was kind of like the stepping stone it was the stepping stone between you know the very traditional supercars that had been around up to that time the sort of the you know the Kuntash's and the Testarossa's and that sort of thing uh between that and the utter insanity that was the McLaren F1 and you know don't forget this is a car which um albeit with its cats taken off did do I think 217 miles an hour uh with Martin Brundle driving it It around the back circuit which meant it would have done 220 um and that was just like you know back in the day when this was you know a short number of years after the f40 had become the first car ever to do more than 200 miles an hour and here was one which did 220 i mean that's a big step um and you know and you know i can remember doing the original um road test i can remember someone crashing the car it wasn't me um which is perhaps another tale for another time um and yeah it was great but the car was a disaster um it took them i mean not years decades to sell the cars um they were you know the last few were hanging around for such a long period of time um and of course now the prices are starting to tick up because people are realizing that you know know, if, if you think of the boxes that you need to tick to make a car a you know a good investment well you want it to be beautiful check you'd want it to be rare very check you want it to be amazingly fast absolutely you'd want it to be technologically sophisticated and the way it's put together it was you'd want it to have competition success you know, it won its class at Le Mans with David Coulthard driving it until they disqualified it for some technical irregularity um you know it takes all the boxes and i think people are starting to wake up to that now and actually thinking these are pretty special cars but at the time they couldn't sell them and then they dived under the into the shadow of the mclaren f1 um and it took a very very long time for them to emerge um i drove one quite recently and you know it's a it's, it's, it's a slightly sort of clunky charming old thing but still really fast still you know, off-the-scale sense of occasion. Um, and, yeah, I'd love to have a go at another one one day.
0: I used to have one. Of course you did. How big was it? Uh, eight inches, maybe. <laughs> it was electric, one of the less common electric XJ220s. Yes. And it had a magnet underneath it to stick it to the scale electric track.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And was it one of your, your favourites? Oh, oh, no, it was. It was the favourite. That was I the got, one? Yeah, until I got an Audi A4 touring car and that replaced it
1: was that like a sort of a Frank Beeler spec um,
0: yeah sort of early A4 Richard Lloyd BTCC car yeah with the the four ring emblems large down the side of the car yeah 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 um, very cool I, I, do you remember with Scarlett Street's cars you'd, you'd get them out of the box and they'd, you'd be delighted with it and then you'd crash it and the first thing that would happen is that the door mirrors would snap off <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they'd never, never go
0: back on again yeah exactly they were just gone Right, wow, they made made the car faster didn't it not having that bit of drag um anyway so <laughs> right we're 45 minutes in or so oh um, bloody hell so we probably need to get a bit of a move on don't we so we're we're into the ford era of the 90s yeah. which showed some promise um the xk8 proper car. sports car yeah universal acclaim. um xk8
1: i i i know we need to keep moving but xk8 was its genesis is just quite interesting because it's the car jaguar refused to build and by that let me explain um tom walkinshaw uh when jaguar were looking to replace the xjs um tom walkenshaw went because he'd raced the xjs and he knew the thing inside i went to jaguar um and said uh look we could do this we can just reskin this car and it'll be absolutely amazing and it'll cost buttons because it will still be the same car underneath and jaguar went, no, no no we need an all-new sports car we're going to build this thing called the xj41 and walkenshaw went fair enough told a lot to aston martin and said we'll do your db7 um, and that's where the db7 came from um, and then Jaguar went and pursued the XJ41, which got bigger and fatter and heavier and, you know, and, and, and suddenly got to the point where um, it was never going to make it. Um, and Ford canned it and said, well, why don't you just re-skin the, the XJS? And that was the XK8 um, with a with a fantastic V8 engine in it, um, which is still around to this day.
0: Yes. Well, it's baffling, isn't it, that they were able to make a, a cracking car out of quite an old platform. Um, so that car works for them but yeah as you've noted there there seemed to be an element of complacency or laziness at this point well um, yeah i mean
1: it, it got an attack of the fords didn't it um and you know ford was they wanted a return on their investment um and they thought you know they stuck it in this thing called the premier automotive group didn't they with the other stuff that they bought so there was aston martin was in there and volvo was in there and so on and so forth and, and, and they just thought that you know, their platforms were good enough for anyone and you could create a thing called an S-Type and stick it on a, you know, a Lincoln platform and you could make a thing called the X-Type and stick it on a Mondeo platform because they look different and were called Jaguars. Everybody think, well, that's fine. And it just wasn't. It just wasn't even close. I mean, the S-Type and the X-Type, both in styling terms, which is so important to Jaguar. Um, you know, the, the S-Type did, you know, retro in all the wrong ways and the x-type just looked odd um and so there was nothing you know and don't forget what they were up against you know e-classes five series three classes c three series three uh, c classes you know just so much stuff which was and you know if you're going to go up against three series bmw you've got to give people a reason to not buy a three series bmw and they didn't you can't just say well it's a jaguar okay it's not as good to drive it's uglier Um, it's underpinnings are you know are are, are very um, by those standards run of the mill Um, and yeah and 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 it didn't work and it all went terribly wrong and then Ford started losing huge amounts of money um, and needed to offload it
0: yeah and it's a good job they did really isn't it because it was Tata who took control in 2008 um, and that just allowed Jaguar to be Jaguar again or specifically Jaguars to be Jaguars again
1: yeah i mean i i I think that you know the indians were were so good and and to an extent still are but you know certainly in those early days um i just loved the approach which was you know you guys know the brand you understand what a Jaguar should be um and we'll just you know we'll back you um you know financially and in all other ways um and don't disappoint us and they were just able to get on with it um, and then cars like you know it's only just gone out of production um but the you know the the new xj came out in 2011 what an amazingly cool piece of piece of kit that was um fabulous interior design uh and then you know and they did the the f type um which you know in 2013 when they came out we all thought was you know pretty amazing and you know and and you know and, and we've gone on from there um there have been some I wouldn't even call them hiccups. There have been some, some cars which yeah, haven't been that great. I mean, I think people look back at things like the XE and the XF, which are obviously both still with us. And I think they are fine, perfectly serviceable examples of what they are. Uh, and nothing like, you know, uh, the, the frankly, the sheds that things like the X-Type were. But even so, I don't think that either of those provided a sufficient reason for people to get out of their Audis and their BMWs and, the, and their Mercs um but something like an f-pace does you know an f-pace um when that came out you know i'm not a huge fan of those sorts of suvs but within its class when the f-pace came out it was it was the best car that there was and i think it's actually aged very well i think it's you know um you know because it's quite light because it's got an aluminium architecture on it um and because it looks good um thanks to you know ian callum uh it's a really credible Piece of work. So you know, Jaguar is still doing some good stuff um, today.
0: Mm. Yeah, the F Type. Let's talk about that a little bit because yeah, I remember doing the original launch. I think it's in the north of Spain, um, yeah, two thousand thirteen, uh, and it was a good car. And I, the thing, I think, the thing about the F Type is that it's very good despite the limitations that Jaguar was up against. Um, for instance, the, the V six, which you can't get anymore, was literally. The V8 with two cylinders blanked off—they're still there. The cylinders are still underneath the bonnet; they're just blanked off, um, and that gives you a I V6. didn't know that. It's yeah, it's been—I've heard it a few times, and it's been confirmed to me by at least one insider. Um, I didn't know that. To the point where they—I think they'd commissioned—you know—those wonderful uh, technical drawings, um, and the the artist wanted to know what to do with the v6 model because he'd clearly have to have the two blank cylinders there um so i think they i think they only did that car from uh you know head-on rather than in profile so that you wouldn't be able to tell um and the other thing about the f-type is that it, it uses a sort of chopped down version of the xk platform doesn't it that came before it so it's aluminium, but it's, it's still a heavy car. It's old, relatively old technology. And I remember weighing the four-wheel drive V8 models um, at 1,800 kilograms, more or less. Um, that's, what, 200, 250 more, perhaps, than a 911 turbo, which is a more usable car and yeah. faster. Yeah, I
1: mean, were those early
0: cars? So, were those the early cars? They would have been convertibles, presumably. No, these weren't very, very early cars. These were coupés
1: yeah i mean yeah it, it, it was quite a heavy car but it was good it was it was it was a good you know i i I still enjoy driving. i mean I, I i actually the one i enjoy most at the moment is the two liter car the 300 horsepower two liter car i think that's you know for the money i think that is a you know a credible uh, opponent for an entry level you know car in that class be it a you know a Supra or a cayman or whatever or a tt in a way that frankly the whatever they're calling it the five hundred and thirty-five horsepower um F type R is not a credible opponent to a you know, a nine eleven these days. Um
0: Yeah. Yeah, the V8 ones they they cost big money. You can spend eight um six figures on a an F-type, and at that money it just it's out of its sort of comfort zone, isn't it really? yeah. 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 Right, well we need to sort of begin to wrap this up, but also look forward and I think we should just sort of quickly set out a blueprint for what a successful jaguar looks like what its heartland models are what what motorsport it's involved in um maybe talk electric a little bit because of course jaguar beat some of the big german manufacturers um to market with an electric car the ipace um well i i
1: i think i I think the the way to to look forward um is is to learn that lesson and 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 also to look back and i think the ipace is the is the great example of that i mean if you if you look back through history at all the Jaguars that have ever really, really worked, uh, all the cars we've talked about, from you know the one hundred and twenty to the Mark II to the E Type, the XJ, and so on and so forth, you know the one thing they have done is they have led. They have broken the mold. They have done things that other cars had not done up to that point, um, either in individual areas or more usually as as a complete car. It just made a completely compelling proposition. And when Jaguar falls flat on its face is when it follows, when it does, you know, an X-Type or something like that and just doesn't do it as well as what's already out there and established. And, you know, I think the prime example of this, and, and to me, this is as good an example as any of those early wonderful cars, is the I-Pace. You know, that was, you know Jaguar was first to market with a, you know, a, a proper sort of full sized you know, electric SUV. And it was... Um, you know, in in the luxury car category at least, and it was it was just fantastic. I mean, I, I, among electric cars, it looked fantastic. It performed really, really well. It was it was and remains a highly desirable example of that kind of car. And of course, it's been you know it, it, in in sales terms, it's been very, very good for them. And I'm and I'm not surprised because it's Jaguar getting back to what Jaguar does best. Um and yeah that's how it has to that's how it has to see the future it's just got to be ahead of the game and not behind the curve as it's been you know too often um over the last whatever it's been you know 30 40 years
0: there has to be um really really first-rate luxury cars in there and that there's going to be an electric only xj at, at some point It should be coming quite soon um, you know, i
1: mean i i i hear this year that really excites me yeah um you know, because I don't think that really, really cool design costs an awful lot money—more money than really, really crap design. Um, and if you look at the XJ, the last XJ, the one that came out ten years ago, um, and you look at the interior, that just how what's what an incredibly special place that was to sit and to be. And I, and I think that if Jaguar can do a an electric XJ that in 2021 is as cool as that was in 2011 that looks that amazing and obviously ticks all the boxes it needs to in terms of you know range and performance and everything else that could be a really really compelling car um and and a very jaguar car um so you know i'm just keeping everything crossed for that because i have high hopes
0: indeed yeah and in this blueprint of ours there also needs to be a, a first a top draw sports car doesn't there um and inevitably, to reach the volumes that a company like Jaguar needs to, it does need to sell SUVs. Sadly, um, it'd be it'd be good if they were more F-Pace than E-Pace, though, wouldn't it? Oh, um, the E-Pace. What were they <laughs> thinking?
1: <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. God, just give us twenty seconds on that. I've never driven. No, one.
1: do you know? What? I'm not going to. Uh, oh, most okay. disappointing Jaguar I've ever driven. And I'll probably <laughs> okay. include the X-Type in that. Okay, um, you know, uh, no. Compared, no, let's not. Let's not go there.
0: Fine. Well, last question then, and to wrap this up, and we've got literally a minute. Jag does Jag- Jaguar need to be involved in motorsport and does it need to be involved in a more engaging form of motorsport than Formula E? Uh to me, yes, absolutely.
1: To me, and I know that Jaguar's been in Formula E for a while and I know James barkley who runs their team. Um and you know, I think they're doing an increasingly good job. But to me, when I think of racing Jaguars, that's not what I think of. And maybe that's because I'm a 55-year-old bloke who's stuck in the past. But I, I'd be interested to know um, what youngsters think of it. Um, you know, to me, Jaguar needs to be... I think Jaguar does need to be racing again. Um, and, 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 I, and I think, actually, if they just had a presence, I think that would be fine. If they just did customer cars, that would be fine. And I hope that they are looking at things like LMDH or an LMH, these new... Um, series that they can race in the, either the World Sports Car Championship or the WEC as it is now or, or over in America or both um, because to me that's where Jaguar's heartland is I think that there's plenty of opportunities in the future for them to be doing that in a way that is entirely forgive the word synergistic with their uh, uh, future aspirations and direction that they want to go in um, they'd be up there competing against you know all their big competitors um, obviously you know Jaguar is a very small brand. It's, not, it's part of quite a large company, but it's a very small brand. And there's not going to be a huge amount of money to go around. But, you know, I would love to see Jaguar go into one of those. Uh, you know, something like LMDH, where it's all almost all off the peg stuff. Um, and you can do customer program. And yeah, it would just be great. And, and I don't think they would need to win. I don't think people would think, well, if Jaguar went back to Le Mans, they'd have to win first out. Because you know, I think people have their expectations. I think people would just love to see them out there and as long as they are in the mix and, you know, cutting it with you know, with Porsche and with Audi and everybody else who's doing it, then, you know, I think that would be fine. Um But yeah, um to me I'd far rather they were doing that than um than Formula E.
0: Um, if you're wondering why we haven't spoken about Formula One, uh it's because, well, we, we covered it in detail, didn't we, in our recent podcast, Formula One's Family Tree. We talk about the the unfortunate um, Jaguar foray into F1. So, yeah, go back to listen to that if you haven't already. Um, but there we go. Let's leave our Jaguar podcast there. Um, and you, you know the score, everyone. Please rate and review the podcast. Please check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash drive nation. And you can bung us a few quid a month. And we will be back to talk to you again next week. Yeah, look forward to it. All the best. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel.